strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Karma Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia. We are broadcasting right across the country today. A big good morning to all our listeners, wherever you may be tuning in to us from. Renate Kenefam here in Ubuntu, Alice Springs, and going across the country on uh, Vast Channel 911. We're also coming to you online as well from uh, our website at uh, karma.com.au. Today is uh, Tuesday, the 25th of June, 2019. I'm your host for Strong Voices this morning, Kyle Dowling, and it's great to have your company today. We're coming up on Strong Voices. Uh, Last Friday marked 12 years since the Northern Territory intervention began. People opposed to the intervention have continued their push for change and have created an open letter to the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ken Wyatt, about the impacts of the intervention and changes they would like to see. Today we're going to hear from uh, a former family court chief, uh, former family court chief justice, uh, Alistair Nicholson, as well as a leading analyst on the impacts of the intervention, Professor John Altman, are going to be sharing their point of views twelve years on from the intervention and that letter put forward. Also, we're going to be hearing about the uh, 2019 Lowcher Institute International Indigenous Health and Wellbeing Conference. The chair of Australia's leading Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health research organisation will be joining us this morning to tell us all about it. We're of course, as well, near the tail end of the program, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio this Tuesday morning. Well, the 21st of June 2019 marked 12 years since the intervention was launched by the Howard government, which was then continued by consecutive Labor governments before the coalition regained office. The intervention continues today under the front of Stronger Futures. On the 12th anniversary, Barbara Shaw and Elaine Peckham, along with other Aboriginal voices, created an created an open letter to the uh, Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ken White. I recently spoke with former Family Court Chief Justice Alistair Nicholson about the open letter and the push for change. It was a decision taken by people who were very much involved in the campaign against the intervention, including myself, uh, late Malcolm Fraser, and uh, a group called Concerned Australians in Melbourne who have been very active in, in pursuing the, the cause, and uh, various other, other people that uh, 
we've worked with is John Altman, a well-known academic who's worked in this area, and Jeff McBullard, the media person who's also very passionate about it. We've worked together and we decided to, on the occasion of the 12th anniversary of what we regard as a most unfortunate event, uh, we thought it was time to reactivate the complaint and concern about it. For you, you said you're, you're opposed to the intervention. Why are you opposed to the intervention? What negative impacts have you seen it have over these 12 years? Well, you could go back to the start and say I was opposed on the grounds that I thought it was a suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act was a disgrace. Uh, I thought the sending of the army was a disgrace. And uh, I was very doubtful, uh, as were my colleagues, about uh, the bona fides of the government in doing it. I think that the events that have occurred since have pretty well supported that view. The only uh, but the other real concern that we later developed was that when the Labor government came to power, it rebranded uh, the activity as Stronger Futures, but it continued basically with what had gone before. With some modifications, we didn't have the army running around anymore, but uh, it really was a, very much a papering over of the situation. Indeed, it took them a long time to restore the uh, uh, provisions of the Racial, Racial Discrimination Act. We're left with all sorts of... Uh, Hangovers from that time, the destruction of the effective destruction of local administration involving Aboriginal people and the imposition in effect of other forms of administration in which they don't have any say, the alcohol bans that are largely gone now, but various other things like the business in relation to money and uh, controlling their, their income and their expenditure and so on is, is I think, racist and uh, I think it's appalling. And we don't think that anything has really been achieved by the intervention and by the measures that have been taken. If one looks at uh, all the uh, surveys, things have not improved since that time in, in many areas. We think that it's time the people were properly consulted about the sort of arrangement how they want to carry out their lives, education is another area that uh, has been interfered with in, you know, I think, a very unfortunate way. But the whole concept seems to me to run contrary to the principle of recognising Indigenous people, which we did in supporting the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. In your opinion, then, essentially, the intervention hasn't delivered positive uh, impacts, essentially. Do you think it's essentially failed, then? I think it's essentially failed. I mean, one of the prime reasons the government gave for it was to deal with the issue of sexual abuse. Well, if you uh, look at the evidence, there many of the sort of wilder claims that were made about pornographic rings and various sorts of things never stood up to proper examination. Of course, unfortunately, there's a level of sexual abuse throughout both white and Aboriginal communities, but in our view, no worse in one than the other. There are obvious difficulties in the Aboriginal communities, particularly in relation to poverty and conditions in which they live and education and uh, we don't think the, there's any evidence that the uh, intervention did anything about that. We're very hopeful with a new minister uh, responsible at the federal level and one who is an Indigenous person that there might be a complete change of approach. And, and speaking on move, looking forward then, what, what changes do you think need to happen within this space in, in order to actually have you know meaningful impact with Aboriginal people? You mentioned Aboriginal involvement. These are the people affected. They are the people who ought to be involved. And uh, I'm not, I don't want to start prescribing what ought to happen. I, I'd be wanting to talk to them to talk about what, what they think should happen. It seems to be that that's the proper starting point, and after that, we can work out ways in which we can help them. But uh, to give them the responsibility is what I regard as absolutely necessary. So, within this open letter, though, what, what are some of the things that were revealed to them from some of the people that they would like to see changes? Is it completely scrapping uh, stronger futures? Yes. 
I believe so. I believe that's the general that's the general view, and I think we're addressing some of the real issues. Like uh, all this started off talking about protecting children, but appalling levels of uh, incarceration of children, Aboriginal children in the in the Northern Territory uh, and in Western Australia in particular. It's it's only in these areas that children in the bracket ten to fourteen seem to finish up in custody, and nearly all of them are are indigenous. And I think it's a national disgrace because, after all, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child provides that, uh, that no child shall be guilty of any criminal offence under the age of fourteen, and yet we happily go on with with the preservation of these uh, of these what I think are barbaric principles. There are so many areas you can sort of keep going and and, and see difficulties everywhere. It's time I think that we rethought how we did these things and that we stopped dictating from Canberra or Darwin for that matter and really talk to the people. One of the one of the issues that really disturbed me was when the Stronger Futures program went into effect, that was preceded by a so-called consultation. We made careful examination of uh, the way in which the consultation was held became obvious that it was not a consultation at all. The people were just told what was going to happen and attempts were made to get them to endorse it, which they rarely did. So it seems to me that the real starting point is to go back to square one, start really talking to the people and start giving them proper representation. Now, but issues like treaty, for example, would be an avenue to do this. And uh, it seems to me that uh, that would be uh, very productive if we were to do so. Do you think now, again, is an important time, not only because, obviously, uh, to discuss this, not only because we do have a federal minister for Indigenous Affairs, but as we know, the, the Productivity Commission is, is going around now and actually asking people and organisations around the nation to you know, be a part of that process of evaluating how government policies are impacting Indigenous Australians. Uh, obviously, yeah, well, that's a start. Yeah. Obviously, the, the intervention would definitely be one where we can, you know, obviously have a lot of valuable input from the mob that have been impacted by that. I agree with that, and that, that, that's, that, that's, that is a good opportunity, and so that's another hopeful sign, I would have thought. Obviously, this is 12 years on, like we were saying. Uh, are you hopeful moving forward in addressing this and making those changes? I would not go so far as to say I'm hopeful, but uh, I believe that there's a greater appreciation in the Australian community about the problems that we have and that, and that the, they're not really solved by uh, white-imposed principles from elsewhere. So I'm hopeful in that sense. And I think eventually common sense has got to prevail. We've had a long history of not prevailing in this area, but... Uh, uh, there are signs here and there that uh, things are happening. There's some moves towards, for example, treaty uh, treaty in Victoria or some other states. But I think there are hopeful signs, but I think that we've still got a long way to go. That was former Family Court Chief Justice uh, Alistair Nicholson there. Uh, I did reach out to uh, the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, uh, Minister Ken White's office yesterday and received a statement from them. Uh, Minister White stated that uh, the Morrison government wants to do things differently. This means uh, co-designing and planning now and into the future with Indigenous Australians at all levels, from elders, families and communities to peak representative bodies. Uh, Minister White did acknowledge the input of the uh, Intervention Rollback Action Group and said that he will respond in due course. We're going to be hearing very soon about uh, Professor John Altman, who's going to be as well talking about uh, this open letter and the intervention 12 years on very soon. Before then, we are going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back with that interview with John Altman. Hi 
guys, this is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices today. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company this morning. Well, earlier we were discussing uh, the... Uh, 12-year anniversary of the Northern Territory intervention, which was marked uh, last Friday, the 21st of June. Uh, I spoke with uh, former Family Court Chief Justice uh, Alistair Nicholson about an open letter uh, that was put forward to the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ken White. Uh, Paul's uh, Karma Radio's Paul Wiles uh, spoke with uh, academic and research author Professor John Altman about uh, the intervention 12 years on. Here's our conversation now. Very happy to welcome an old friend back to Karma. John Altman joins us on the program. John, welcome back. Thank you very much, Paul. Nice to be with you. Well, John, 12 years since the Northern Territory intervention took place, the only place uh, within Australia that these type of rules and regulations were imposed, the uh, government of the day overturned uh, federal legislation to uh, enable it to take place. We've Since then, we've had a, a, a Labor government uh, in office nothing changed. Uh, We're now to stage three or four of the intervention with very little hope on the horizon for the First Nations peoples here in the Northern Territory. Yes, I think, uh, you know, I guess you could say 12 years down and at least theoretically uh, only three to go. Um, The intervention in 2007 was only meant to last five years. Um, The Howard government's mantra was, um, you know, stabilise, normalise and exit. Uh, after five years, and that was, I suppose, meant to suggest that um, everything in, you know, remote Indigenous communities uh, would be sorted out in five years. Of course, we know that in 2012, five years on, uh, the Gillard government and its minister, Jenny Macklin, continued the intervention for another decade, uh, maintaining uh, some of its key measures, uh, particularly uh, income management, uh, which, um, you know, many... uh, Indigenous people in the Territory um, experience um, and, and you know, continuing with the changes to the Community Development Employment uh, Project Scheme, uh, turning it into a draconian work for the Dole Scheme, uh, that's, uh, you know, deeply impoverishing remote living Aboriginal people because, uh, you know, people keep on getting uh, penalised uh, for um, not turning up for, um, you know, what many people refer to as bull work. Um, so, so, you know, my real concern and, and, and why I think we need to commiserate on the 21st of June of every year is that, uh, in my opinion, uh, in many uh, remote Indigenous communities in 2019, things are worse than they were in 2007. I know that, um, you know, a previous uh, minister, I think it was Nigel Scullion, said um, the Australian government could have done things better with the intervention well, in my opinion, uh, they couldn't have done things worse than they did. John, uh, again, you did mention some of the uh, impositions that uh, have been imposed on Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. And again, uh, for the wider Australian public, many uh, are, are totally oblivious that the intervention uh, under a different name and guise is still alive, well and kicking. Yeah, I think that's one of the paradoxes of the intervention is that the, again, Australian government uh, wanted to abolish the permit system and take over townships uh, to make them more open uh, to media scrutiny. Uh, and they were open to media scrutiny for a while, but, of course, um, 
You know, most uh, mainstream media, not media like Karma, but mainstream media quickly forgets Indigenous issues. And, and you're quite right, Paul. Um, most people aren't aware that the intervention is still going on. And most people aren't aware that the government uh, continues to sponsor evaluations of its measures, uh, again, particularly income management and, and a uh, measure that it's transforming into called the cashless debit card that shows that uh, despite considerable government expenditure, uh, these, these measures aren't making any difference. And, and with uh, the Community Development Program, you know, the euphemist, euphemistic name for the draconian work for the Dole scheme uh, that's applied to Indigenous Australians, uh, things are getting worse. And, you know, official statistics are showing that more than half of uh, Aboriginal households in the Northern Territory uh, are living in poverty. And, and poverty in remote, very remote uh, Indigenous Australia is, in fact, increasing uh, rather than declining. John, uh, again, just uh, looking at this from an international perspective, I mean, the Australian government has continued to fly under the radar in many ways, um, both uh, the coalition and the Labor government, about its treatment of a very sizeable uh, Aboriginal population here within Australia. And uh, um, even to this uh, very day, uh, you know, we have uh, a large number of non-Indigenous people uh, complaining about the imposition that is being placed on them when they go to purchase alcohol, um, which is nothing nothing at all like, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Aboriginal people face on a daily basis. So in many ways... Um, while we are all aware of the uh, the uh, tragic consequences of abuse and overuse of alcohol, um, again, uh, it it is a, a relatively small number of people who are on the uh, banned drinkers register, and yet you know there's a, a massive crackdown on anyone purchasing alcohol I, i'm just wondering from a again from a national perspective how this sort of uh, imposition would sit yeah well i think most australians wouldn't tolerate uh, you know what's being done to um, indigenous people and um, you know again nominally um, you know um, i think we've had some coverage of this recently uh, in places like alice springs um, you know, the banned drinker register, register and um, requirements for people to show identification before they uh, purchase alcohol uh, is very much um, implemented on a colour basis and uh, black people are targeted uh, for these sorts of measures um, because they're black, not, not because um, they're, you know, behaving badly or um, necessarily have a bad record. So I think the Australian government, you know, has been quite clever uh, and nominally, um, you know, sort of establishing measures and, and the Northern Territory government establishing measures that are um, nominally non-discriminatory, uh, but effectively um, these are highly discriminatory measures. And I think recently uh, there were some black South Africans in uh, Alice Springs who said that they were um, sub subjected to, uh, you know, particular measures because they were black, but because they were Aboriginal. And, and they were quite sure that they'd been treated differently if they were white. So I do think that, that internationally, um, you know, there is uh, not enough scrutiny of what's going on in Australia. But I also think that uh, when people uh, hear about some of the measures in Australia, just 
represents Australia in an appalling way. And I, and I know that uh, recently there's been some coverage of this issue um, in uh, that weekly um, magazine, quite a conservative uh, magazine, The Economist, um, basically uh, highlighting that despite all the rhetoric of closing the gap, uh, the government uh, is failing. Uh, but again, what most Australians don't realise is that failure, you know, is, is, is far uh, greater uh, in remote and very remote areas, you know, where people are out of sight, out of mind, and where the sorts of measures that are being applied um, are paternalistic, they're draconian, uh, they're impoverishing, they're demeaning, uh, and they're unhelpful. And, and yet, you know, not, not to be too pessimistic, there's some terrific things that are happening in remote Australia um, around, you know, carbon farming, uh, land management, um, you know, the, the uh, arts industry, um, cultural tourism, and, and, and these very positive things are happening despite government. And if, if government allocated, you know, the resources that it was, um, you know, using uh, for unproductive, draconian programs to things that actually worked, I think we could see some pretty rapid improvement in remote Indigenous Australia. So, again, you know, it's, it's incumbent on government in a way to change its approach because now, after 12 years of the intervention and more than 10 years of closing the gap, things haven't improved. So when things don't improve, you know, sensible policy making would see change. But unfortunately, you know, with a newly elected federal government, there seems to be absolutely no evidence... Uh, that government is going to change tack. Uh, they're going to continue income management. They're going to continue the community development program, that draconian work for the Dole scheme. And they're going to continue to neglect remote living people and particularly uh, those people living in outstations. So, you know, certainly if we'd had a change of government, um, you know, things uh, wouldn't have improved overnight. But some of the measures uh, that the... Um, you know, short in opposition was countenancing, uh, particularly around Indigenous representation and about supporting remote communities um, and about uh, getting rid of some of these unproductive, uh, punitive programs uh, would have seen uh, potentially things improve. And, and at the moment, you know, despite the, um, the appointment of an Indigenous person as Minister for Indigenous Australians, um, there's just no evidence that things are going to change. That, I suppose, beggars the question, is it in the best interest of government to change things? I mean, when one looks at uh, the vast amounts of money that uh, are bandied around uh, under the guise of uh, Aboriginal advancement, um, mm. there seems to be an awful lot of non-Indigenous Australians making a buck out of it. Look, I think that's certainly true. And when we have these uh, Indigenous expenditure reviews um, that show um, how much money is spent on uh, Indigenous Australians, um, nobody wants to ask the hard question of how much of that money is hitting the target. That is, again, in the context of, um, you know, where you are in the Northern Territory, how much of that money is actually getting to Indigenous people who do need assistance uh, just with basic citizenship entitlements like education, housing, health services, employment and training. And, and how much of this is, is going to in, 
to non-Indigenous people who are administering, if you like, the Indigenous problem. And, and you know, I, I don't say this necessarily blaming those people, but it just seems to me that, um, you know, the way the whole architecture of delivering services to Aboriginal people is, is framed is, is, you know... Um, you know, it's bound to benefit non-Indigenous people. And, and when I look at the statistics, you know, at those remotest places, that, you know, what used to be called the 73 prescribed communities, I look at census statistics about those places, and I see that non-Indigenous people in those places are likely to be fully employed and earning five or six times more than local Indigenous people. So the indications are that those that come in and administer programs actually do a lot better than the supposed beneficiaries of those programs. And if you amplify that to what's going on territory-wide and nationwide, I think, as you say, Paul, much of the spend supposedly on Indigenous Australians is actually going uh, to other people. And, um, you, you know, when we talk about government strategies like developing the North, I think we see a lot of that, uh, you know, development impetus coming from administering what the government terms the Indigenous problem rather than actually seeing, you know, you, know, you know, productive forms of development that could take place with the proper type of support. And, and you could see, you know, Indigenous people making much greater contributions than, the, than they already are to developing the North through, um, you know, managing vast tracts of remote land that are now Indigenous-owned, participating much more in service delivery and in, you know, looking after, um, you know, visitors uh, through the tourism sector, looking after, um, you know, other Australians and, and the planet through their extraordinary efforts, uh, particularly in the tropical savannah, uh, in carbon abatement and carbon farming. Mm. One final question, John, before we finish. Uh, the reality of allowing the First Nations peoples to take control, to manage and solve their own problems, again, is it in the interest of the government or not? Well, logic tells you that that's the only way ahead. And, and in some ways now, you know, we've had enough time to historically look back at the self-determination era when community-based organisations were much more involved in delivering services to their people um, and, and, and designing, you know, uh, forms of service, you know, that, that suited people's particular circumstances. So, you know, again, when you think about, you know, the, the extraordinary diversity of Indigenous circumstances and the extraordinary distribution and... and um, you know, spread, you know, of small places uh, in the territory across, you know, very diverse um, ecological um, regions. Um, it, it, just, it just makes sense, you know, that one size will not, you know, suit all. And, and the best way to ensure effective delivering, delivery of services is to devolve um, you know, service delivery uh, to local people and local providers. Uh, the in interesting thing is that, that that is something that actually, you know, accords very much with neoliberal thinking, uh, but, but neoliberal ideology in Canberra only goes so far. And when it actually comes to, you know, putting ideology into practice, there's extraordinary resistance from political and bureaucratic elites in this country. 
On that note, uh, John Altman, many thanks for joining us. Terrific to talk to you again, Paul. Yes, that was uh, academic and research author there, Professor John Altman, speaking with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to go to a quick break now, and then we'll be right back with our next interview. Hi, this is Pam from Karma, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices today. Great to have your company, and hopefully you're enjoying your Tuesday morning. We're going to head into our final uh, interview for Strong Voices today. Well, uh, last week, uh, Lowitcher Institute, Australia's leading Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health research organisation, held their International Indigenous Health and Wellbeing Conference on Larrakia Country in Darwin, with uh, this year's theme being Thinking, Speaking, Being. The aim of this year's conference was to provide people with a place to have uh, important discussions about the future that First Nations peoples and to contribute the uh, and con- to contribute to the well-being of the planet. Karma's uh, Damien Williams spoke with the chairperson of the Lodge Institute, Pat Anderson, about what the organisation wants for First Nations peoples of Australia and the world. The Lodge Institute. One of its aspirations and commitment too is trying to meet um, as many uh, of our Indigenous First Nations people from around the world and we're committed to holding every two years um, an international conference and the first one was held in Melbourne in 2016 which was a great success and the latest one was just held last week as you know uh, in Darwin which was a huge success. We had over 760 delegates come from um, many parts of our of Australia, but also lots of um, international um, visitors, First Nations peoples. And I can confidently say that I think this is the first conference that I've ever been to, which was clearly an Indigenous space. There were um, non-Aboriginal um, people there, but they were very much in the minority. Um, over 90% of all participants were, in fact, First Nations peoples, either from here or from across the globe. And this year's theme was Thinking, Speaking, Being. Yeah, that sounds amazing, you know, having... It was, it was. It was fantastic. And, yeah, like you said, you know, having mostly um, First Nations people from across the world, um, yes. yeah, amazing. What kind yes, of things, yes. um, what were some of the uh, big highlights or some of the discussions that were had? Look, it was, a jam, it was a jam-packed program, really well attended, and people really stayed um, right up un, until the end, and all of the speakers were great. We had, like, um, the conference was broken up to, um, into, like, keynotes, uh, sometimes two per session. And then uh, after that, after a break, there was like we call panel discussions. And I can go through um, some of that um, for you and give you um, a little bit of a uh, description. But I might just talk a little bit about um, the, the theme of the, confer- of the conference. And, uh, you know, it was one of our aspirations was to provide respectful and provocative conversations and that, you know, where we can take place it can take place, rather, as we discuss concerns um, for all of us for today and our visions and ambitions for um, future generations. Future generations were stressed a lot for those for our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children. We talk a lot about that here as well. Um, so it was, that was a, a theme that we're not just talking about us. We have to take care of the present and the now, but nevertheless, 
we have an obligation, indeed a responsibility, to all of our future families, and we've been doing this for over 65,000 years, as you know. Um, so um, we would like to, you know, we'd like to invert in the, uh, the conversations rather to um, think about a new way or perhaps of thinking, speaking and being in the world and um, that also serve who we are, as I said, but also to promote um, some new ideas and uh, and also it was stressed by several of the speakers, including us, that we take, in fact, a planetary um, approach. So the conference theme, Thinking, Speaking and Being, First Nations Solutions for Global Change. Uh, we wanted to highlight the importance of language because, as you know, you know to enabling, enabling empowerment and cultural strength and well-being and individual family and community identity because, as you know, this year is also the International Year of uh, Indigenous languages, so we wanted to spend quite a little bit of time on that, and we did throughout um, the, the, the the conference. And also the themes, um, we wanted to remind delegates and presenters to consider all, of, as I said, the global implications of their work, to highlight the role of First Nations people in leading change, and to showcase Indigenous solutions. I'm using the word Indigenous here because I'm also meaning our international friends. I know here we've, we've, we don't like using Indigenous, so just to let the listeners know, when I'm using the word Indigenous, I'm in, using that to include not only us, but also, uh, but more importantly, the, our international um, visitors. Some of the speakers, if you like, the keynote speakers were um, Peter Yu, who, from uh, the Yaru man from Broome. He came and talked at length. It was a fan, it was the first up paper for the day in the first session, and it was just an most amazing amazing um, paper he got a standing ovation it was it covered just about everything you would think you would want to cover and it was a it was it was a great uh, a great uh, a great paper and he's a great uh, great advocate so that was a real pleasure to have him on and then we also the conference was opened um, by um, June Oscar the social justice commissioner but also on our board at the Lower Institute and she also gave uh, an amazing paper about addressing the theme and, and the people who were there. We also had, you may know, um, Mr. Bruce Pascoe, the author of the current book, um, Dark Emu. Bruce also got a standing ovation. He gave an amazing count, account rather of the landscape here uh, in Australia pre, pre-contact and all the, uh, the wonderful sites that are around our continent but are not known, accepted or recognised by, um, I suppose, mainstream Australia. We know we know them all, but or most of them, but many people don't. And so it's, once again, it talks to the invisibility of us as First Nations peoples in our own country. We also had Professor Tahu Kakatai from Aotearoa. Uh, she gave a great presentation on something boring like data and statistics, but it was just... she. They were doing it there right down to families preparing their own genealogies and they as professionals take some of that information in concert um, with their communities and indeed um, families. So that was um, very encouraging about how, how they are dealing with that kind of hard um, sort of data and the implications that it has for families and, and their communities. We had Dr Julia Kim from Bhutan. Uh, she spoke about... Uh, she's a public health doctor working in Bhutan for some time, and currently she's the uh, project director of the Gross, Nas- the Gross National Happiness Centre. Now they measure happiness, so that was very 
a really thought-provoking piece because I know all of our organisations and all of us have to account uh, for government monies, but a few of us suggested, well, I was thinking, I was talking to a few people afterwards that maybe when our organisations measure what it is they do and the impact it has, that impact might have more of, uh, be more meaningful because we all say that we're doing all we're doing all that we do for our communities and our families, but we not we don't often know how we are doing, and we and we most of our measurement is to satisfy government departments for the funds that we receive. So I found that uh, a very gentle, gentle uh, presentation, uh, very um, thought provoking. And then we had um, Bruce Blankenfield. A Hawaiian, rather, from the Polynesian Voyaging Society. They have resurrected all their old ways of um, travelling by the stars across the whole of the Pacific and to other countries. And that's, they've got a whole, they've rebuilt all the canoes, or not all, but um, a whole lot of um, canoes. And they're teaching all, all uh, Hawaiians once again to go on these huge voyages across the Pacific and further, and you, with no compass except. Um, Except the star, so that was a really um, an amazing, uh, amazing presentation. Uh, Bruce is a, is a fisherman, in fact, but remains he's still an active community member in what they call he's a, he's a coach and also the president of the board of directors of the canoeing club, and he's a long time kayaker and works full time as a stevedore. So he was a very uh, very interesting man. Him and his wife Lita came, and it was really great. Um, to um, host them. And we also have uh, Dr. Um, Abe Bang, who works with 100, get this, 104 million Indigenous peoples in India. And he came and gave um, also a great uh, presentation of the work um, that they're doing. And he has been doing, he and his wife have been doing in that area for over 40 years. He's a very interesting man, much decorated. He grew up in Mahatma Gandhi's um, ashram, so I think that might have a bit to do with his um, the work that he does now and the, uh, the, that he and his wife have dedicated um, their life their life to. We had a whole range of, um, as I say, uh, panel uh, panel discussions. Uh, so, and with uh, three panelists uh, on a particular theme, and then a, a chair. Like on the first day, we had. Um, the, the panel was adjust, uh, um, asked to, to, to address the first theme, which was thinking, and Bromley Mocat chaired that. We had Dr. Kerry Arabina, June Oscar, and James Professor James Ward on that panel. On day two, we had speaking as, a, as one of the themes, and Mr. Ali Drummond chaired that. He's also a board member. And we had um, about four or five women from the um, NPY's Women's Council, uh, David Collard from Western Australia, and a wonderful Hawaiian um, woman who also spoke with her, talked about the renaissance of, and the use, rather, and history of um, the Hawaiian language, Dr. Ku Kahakalau. Sorry about that, Doctor. And then on panel three, uh, the subject was, was being, uh, was chaired by Kerry Arabina, and we had um, Jody Curry, Associate Professor Chelsea Bond, and Mr. Bruce um, Blankenfield. So... They were all they were I uh, they were provocative discussions uh, went down really well with everybody they're all very inclusive and um, so it was a, it was a great program not to mention a whole range of concurrent um, sessions Damien so as I say 
uh, we had uh, people there for the whole pre day. There were three um, full days, starting really early at 8.30. In fact, one of the sessions, I walked out the last one for the afternoon. I looked at my clock and it was 10 to 6. Oh. <laughs> and people, people just stayed until everybody finished, you know. Um, and uh, we, we, were, we were really um, well supported um, by the Larrakia Nation, and people came in and out, and also the Darwin Aboriginal population, even if they weren't participants, came in and out and visited, and that was that was really nice. So, you know, uh, lots of uh, local Darwin people and workers sort of dropped in and had a cup of tea or come for lunch or, you know, stayed for a couple of sessions. So it was, uh, it turned out to be um, a bit of an open house to uh, local Darwin Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families as well. So it was a really a great gathering of um, First Nations peoples. And Darwin was a great venue in the dry season. We're down there on the waterfront. We used the convention centre for the, every every function, including um, the gala dinner we had on the Wednesday night. So it was a, although it was a, a robust intellectual place of discussion and conversation, it was also fun. Everyone had a great time. So I'm very, very, as chair of the Lower Chair Institute, I'm very, very happy. So what was the big thing for you, Pat, that um, sort of really stood out uh, at the conference this year? I think the um, so many people from different backgrounds, so many First Nations peoples globally, I think that was a, um, a standout for me. And, and in that, what was the feature of that, rather, was the fact that we had this three-day conference in an Indigenous space. So the majority of all of the participants, the 760 of them, were First Nations people from either here or abroad. And I think that changed the whole tone of the conversations that we had, of which there were many. It was a great program. I think the choices we made of topics um, in the based uh, on the on the theme uh, worked out to be really really well we had some um, great some great speakers and uh, thinking speaking being was talked about and every combination of how you might uh, might look at that and it was first nations peoples um, leading and participating in all of those discussions and conversations so lots of First Nations peoples together in one place, creating an Indigenous place free for us to um, discuss and have conversations about issues um, that concern us. On that note, uh, Pat Anderson, thanks very much for talking to us here on Calm Radio. My pleasure, Damien. Thank you. That was uh, Karma's Damien Williams speaking with the chair of the Lodge Institute, Pat Anderson. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tobin, and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! And now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country here on Strong Voice, and very happy to welcome into the studio Karma's Damien Williams. Damien, thanks for joining us. No worries, Carl. Good morning, and good morning to all our listeners out there. Damien, I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, unaffordable contracts, the mob. Yes, uh, Telstra may be facing investigation over selling unf- unaffordable contracts to vulnerable Australians. The ABC reports that the National Consumer Watchdog has launched an investigation into Telstra's sales practices. Amid mounting ev- uh, reports, vulnerable Indigenous Australians are being hit with skyrocketing bills. So it's, um, yeah, in 
in a rare move, the Australian uh, Competition and Consumer Commission confirmed it was looking it was looking into whether Telstra brought, um, breached consumer law, um, something that carries fines and penalties in the millions of dollars. Um, uh, there has been uh, the ABC had been approached uh, by a dozen of examples across the country um, of Telstra consume customers on Centrelink benefits being sold contracts costing as much as two hundred and fifty dollars a month, um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy if you're on Centrelink, yeah, especially definitely. And 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 as we've heard over the years in terms of you know different things. Uh, impacting the mob like this, you know, taking advantage of communities who, mm. you know, have various uh, barriers, not necessarily just talking about the, the economic side, but the language barriers as well in terms yeah. of understanding contracts, contracts and, and, all that kind and of stuff, what, yeah. what they actually mean to them. Yeah, and so uh, one of the, the Broome financial counsellors, um, Alan Gray, said, um, you know, he's had, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, um, some of his... Um, um, oh, his what's the word um some of the people that he's helped uh with um trying to deal with this thing is um, clients yeah his clients um uh, where a young mother um had had a bill that escalated to nearly two thousand two hundred dollars um before it was sold to um a collection agency as well and uh even talking about another client where um one of the women who lived on a welfare on welfare in the community of uh, 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 I can't say it, but that it's north of Broome um, showed uh, that she had like a seven thousand dollar bill as well, and mm. um, you know he's. Mr. Gray said what started as a dribble of one or two clients, he uh, has turned into a flood of people coming to him with that same story over and over again. Um, you know. People expecting to pay two hundred a month, ending up spending thousands and thousands a month on yeah. on phone bills. We'll definitely watch this space and see how that progresses. Thanks, that Damien. No worries, thank you. Well, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. If you missed any of the stories or want to listen back to the program, we'll be posting up a podcast of uh, Strong Voices up on Karma's SoundCloud uh, later this afternoon. We'll be back the same time tomorrow from eleven till twelve.